Welcome to Rewrite Radio, the podcast from the Festival of Faith and Writing. I'm Lisa Ann Cockrell, the director of the festival, and I'll be your host. This is the place you can listen back to conversations we've had with writers and readers as we celebrated the written word together for over two decades. In each episode, you'll hear a session that took place at the festival. It might be a reading, an interview, a lecture, panel conversation, or something else entirely. Today's episode of Rewrite Radio features Brian Doyle talking about the power of bearing witness via the stories we tell at the 2012 Festival of Faith and Writing. This is a particularly poignant episode for us, as Brian passed away from complications related to a brain tumor on May 27, 2017, less than two weeks ago as we sit in the studio today. Just 60 years old at the time of his death, Brian was a prolific writer producing more than two dozen books of fiction, nonfiction, essays, poems, and prayers, all while editing Portland Magazine for over two decades. His many awards included three Pushcart Prizes, the American Academy of Arts and Letters Award in Literature, the John Burroughs Medal for Distinguished Nature Writing, and a Leslie Bradshaw Award for Young Adult Literature. Seven of his essays appeared in the Best American Essays anthologies. To help me introduce this session, I called up Brian's good friend and his fellow speaker at the 2012 festival, essayist Patrick Madden. Patrick's work has been published in journals including the Iowa Review, Fourth Genre, and Hotel America, as well as in the Best Creative Nonfiction and the Best American Spiritual Writing Anthologies. His own books include two collections of essays, Sublime Physic and Quotidiana, and a co-edited volume, After Montaigne, Contemporary Essayists Cover the Essays. Hello, Patrick. Patrick Madden, thanks so much for joining us to talk about Brian Doyle. Where did we catch you today? I'm in Copenhagen, Denmark. I just arrived today, and I've been traveling for the last week and a half. I was in Reykjavik, Iceland for the Nonfiction Now conference and brought my family with me so we could extend it and spend a little time in Scandinavia afterward, too. How are the kids enjoying Scandinavia so far? They love it, but they're they're tired. We made them walk a whole lot today. <laughs> so um, we're going to listen to Brian Doyle's um, session from the 2012 Festival of Faith and Writing, in which he talked about what he called, quote, ferocious attention. This, the session was really funny, as you'd expect, and kind of rollicking in a Brian Doyle way. Um, uh, but it's, it starts off in this way that's very, um, very poignant. I mean, as you and I are talking here, Brian um, died just a little over a week ago, um, I think. And, um, and the session actually starts um, with him talking about what he would want on his gravestone. And he says, um, not a bad dad <laughs> is what he would want, if, if five words or less was the uh, framework. And it seems like fatherhood, both in relationship to his own kids, but also to other kinds of students and to other and to friends, um, that this was like a really um, important aspect of how he understood himself in the world. Yeah, he also would say when he listed his responsibilities or you know people ask what do you do and we usually respond with our occupation whatever we're paid for he always listed husband father 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 (laughs) and then editor writer etc he always placed family first and with his his biological family 
the only sense I ever got, I never met his family, but was that he was a very involved and loving dad. Uh, not perfect, but willing to admit his mistakes and work with his children. He's written quite a bit about experiences raising his children. Mm-hmm. And that was his deepest pride and deepest sense of responsibility. And like, as you say, he was a father figure for many people. I don't know where he got the time. I <laughs> wonder if he needed much less sleep than the rest yeah, of us. Seems like it. Yeah, I mean, he was always very energetic. And so maybe he was just <laughs> always on and could recharge very quickly at night. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly to me, he was, we'd say a mentor, but in a deeper, more loving way. Mm. It was not a professional relationship. It was a, a loving relationship. And I asked him for many letters of recommendation. And, <laughs> you know, this sort of typical thing you'd do with a mentor. And he always came through. And uh, I think on the basis of his recommendation, sometimes more than on my own merits, uh, mm. he helped me get some of these accolades and awards. Well, I'm sure your own merits were involved <laughs> significantly. A little, a little bit, but it doesn't hurt to have a man <laughs> like that in your corner. That's certainly true. Um, he says, uh, he tells a story in the session as well about his mother-in-law, who at that time in 2012 had recently passed. And he, um, he, he tells a kind of funny story about her and it elicits laughter from, from the audience, of course. And, and he loops that back to how for him, um, you know, each story, every time you tell a story, it, the world becomes just like a millimeter better, um, every time a story is told. Um, do you do you agree with that assessment that every time a story is told, um, the world gets just a little bit better? Well, I suppose it depends on the story. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. But he certainly told the kinds of stories that did make the world better. Hmm. Um, and you can hear it in the audience response. You, if I was there at the at the conference, and I I know that people were abuzz with the things Brian Doyle was saying, the ways that not just in a passive way. People wanted to do things better in their lives. They wanted to be better parents and siblings and mm-hmm. children and so forth. Mm-hmm. And that's, like I was saying before, he truly inspired me, not just in a writing way, because writing can sometimes be a little bit uh, separate from the rest of our lives, right. but in, in a full, whole life way, he inspired me to want to be a better person, a better father, more patient, more loving, more kind, and a better neighbor, a better friend, a better stranger, <laughs> even. And sure. try to pay attention as he did, which honor others with my attention. He, he always noted that too, whenever he'd do a presentation, he always thanked the audience, mm. usually the first thing, for their attention. Mm-hmm. And felt that attention was a form of prayer. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, about that story, um, so the story about his mother-in-law, you know, elicits this um, this kind of collective laughter. And he, he goes on to say that he thinks this sort of collective laughter about a story like like this one about his mother-in-law was just a really, he, he called it a really cool roaring prayer for my mother-in-law. 
um, yeah. which I just loved. And I think that I think as people listen to this session and find themselves laughing <laughs> at Brian and the stories he tells, that they will think of that as a very cool roaring prayer for Brian um, right. in these days. And, it, and it, it lives on. And I think that's another of the power of stories is that um, not just beyond death, but geographically and temporally beyond the experience, the happening itself, the story lives again and grows and we can, it implants in another mind so that it becomes a new thing there at a great distance from the original point. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's exactly right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out of your Scandinavian holiday um, to talk <laughs> about, um, about Brian Doyle. Um, I know I know it's been really tough on a lot of people to have him pass, and we appreciate you spending this time kind of thinking about his life and legacy. It, it is, but I think if we take it in the right spirit, remembering his love and his laughter, then he, he doesn't die. Brian left behind a whole lot of work that we can return to and read and listen to and appreciate. And now, Brian Doyle on paying ferocious attention at the 2012 Festival of Faith and Writing. Lately, I just want to be introduced as Brian Doyle as a dad, a dad, a dad, a husband, a friend, son, brother, citizen, editor, and writer, in that order. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, My friends and I were, had a, I have a basketball team reunion every year in Cape Cod. And uh, we were in our cups, and we decided to figure out, what will you write on your gravestone? You can have four or five words on your gravestone, and it can't say, Brian Doyle, 1956-2012. It has to say something for real. What did you matter? What mattered about your life? And the one, it, it took, it's curiously harder than you think. I should assign it as an exercise, <laughs> come to think of it. Um, but it was curiously hard, and I ended up with not a bad dad. I thought, that's the greatest ambition I have in life, is to not be a bad dad. One of my sons the other day said to me, I have, two, I have twin sons. We have twin sons. Not my fault, okay? <laughs> and uh, my, uh, one of my sons said, the only reason you wanted to be a dad is so you could be mean to me. <laughs> I was like, let, let me, first of all, I laugh, which is the exact wrong response, right? And I said, let me get this straight. There's three billion women in the world, and I sought out your mother, and against all evidence and sense, she married me, so that we can magically have you, so that I could get off on being mean to you. Is that right? Yeah! He says. <laughs> I was like, oh, you are so going to a Jesuit university, son. <laughs> you know, too bad he's not smart enough to go to a Catholic university. Ah, so. Anyway, so you see this is going right off the rails. Uh, uh, one thing I've learned to do before I do any kind of a reading or talk or anything, I'm not a speaker and I'm not a performer and I'm, I'm not good at this, you know, so I only do this under duress. And in this case, because Gail said she would beat me up if I didn't do it. So, But I've learned to start in the proper way uh, with respect. You don't know me from a hole in the wall and I don't know you and chances are good that our roads are not going to cross much in the years to come. So before I do anything else, I say thank you for your attentiveness. It's the greatest of gifts. The woman who married me, a little tiny woman. <laughs> I got down on my knees like you're supposed to when you propose, right? You learn at husband school, you're supposed to get down on your knees to propose. So she's standing and I was kneeling so we're eye to eye, right? <laughs> and she says, look, lust and romance are great, but the great story in life is witness. It's witness to see each other clearly 
to pay attention with your naked holy eyeballs and your wild open ears to dig each other, even if it's just for a minute, to really get it is the greatest of gifts. So thank you. You know, I mean, I haven't earned it, and you're already doing it. <laughs> How crazy on you, on your part. Mm -hmm. So, um, well, I, I, wanted to, I do want to talk about attentiveness and witness and... Uh, the, 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 the way that all stories begin, I want to talk about how powerful stories are. Stories are food. Stories are food. If we don't have stories, we got nothing. We starve without stories. This is the great, this is the great cruelty of Alzheimer's is that it sucks all the stories out and leaves nothing but a shell. How, how, how cruel that is. How cruel to have no stories, you know? So, so that's what I want to talk about, but I want to do it in a sort of a sidelong way. <laughs> um, by first trying to make you laugh, and second, just reading some stories and telling some stories, okay? Kind of want to do a sermon or a homily, God forbid, I'm a good Catholic boy in a nice chapel, <laughs> you know? And, uh, but I, I, I will, first can I try to make you laugh, because I think laughter is a great deflector, right? If we, if we all laugh together, then that's a great holy thing. Um, also, it kind of reduces everybody's dignity, which I think is probably healthy, <laughs> you know? And it, and it totally blows up the whole, I'm up here in my cool green shirt and you're not. <laughs> you're like, ooh, Brian Doyle. No, it's not like that. My kids think I'm an idiot, you know? <laughs> so so let, me, let me read you this just to make you laugh. Out of sheer respect, bear with me, do not be offended. This was pinned up in our bathroom uh, when my kids were little. Uh, the coherent mercy as Barry Lopez says, gave us, uh, my, my lovely bride and I, three children. We have the world's coolest daughter, now 20, at age 16. She was the biggest pill in the history of the world, but she made a roaring comeback. Uh, <laughs> 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 nice kid now. <laughs> and, uh, but we also have twin sons. We were also given twin sons from the, uh, in skin boats from the Sea of the Stars. And, and uh, one of them is now recovering from being the biggest pill in the history of the world. But the other one uh, has been such a nice kid all the way through. He's 17 now. And so my lovely bride is really wor worried that he's going to be like a total bonehead next year. <laughs> so anyway, when they were little, now they're 17 and they're big boys. And, but when they were little, this was pinned up in our bathroom. And uh, one of the reasons I love to read this is because I swore and promised to my sons that I would never read this in public. So I read it all the time. <laughs> and when you're Catholic, you can do these things. <laughs> <laughs> Rules for small twin boys in the bathroom. Rule number one, point it down! <laughs> Rule number two, keep pointing it down! Rule number three, dad does all wiping. Four, keep pointing it down even if you're absolutely sure you're done. Rule number five, the most important rule of your whole life, boys. Listen to me. Each boy points his own pointer. <laughs> Can I help my brother? No, you cannot help your brother. Keep your hands to yourself. Put your hands where I can see them. <laughs> Number six, if spilling occurs, tell dad. Number seven, no washing hands without dad. Number eight, no washing anything without dad. <laughs> Number nine, no, you can't pee in the bathtub. Number 10, yes, you can pee in the bushes outside. This is Oregon, for heaven's sake. <laughs> Number 11, no, you cannot pee in the car, even if it's parked near the bushes outside. <laughs> <laughs> this is where the boys get into if-then statements, right? If we can pee outside and the car is outside, then we can pee in the car. No, wrong. One, one time I was sitting on my front lawn with a good friend drinking beer, and we walk around the corner of uh, my house. There's the car out there, and there's my three-year-old son, to be unnamed but one of the twins, stark naked, trying to pee into the gas tank of the car. 
think about this for a minute. <laughs> he's not real tall. So he's actually, he's skinched up onto the side of the car to try to get a good angle on it, right? And so my friend, there's a long silence as my friend and I contemplate this interesting sight. <laughs> and my friend says memorably a line I'll never forget. I believe your son is trying to mate with your car. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> number 12, yes, dad has a pointer. <laughs> number 13, no, mom does not have a pointer. Number 14, no, I don't know where mom's pointer went. <laughs> number 15, no, I don't know if God has a pointer. Number 16, yes, God would point it down if he had a pointer. <laughs> N- number 17, yes, God could point it down without using his hands. <laughs> <laughs> That's where the boys believed in God for the first time. Number 18 and last, no, I don't know who wipes God. Ask your mother, which is the cowardly refuge of all husbands, you know. I don't know. Ask your mother. <laughs> so, In the same vein, just to make you laugh for a second so we can get all our masks a little bit off, sometimes I feel like, like we were talking, Pat, Pat Madden and I, the great SAS Pat Madden and I were talking this morning about how sometimes you get trapped in the prison of your dignity. You know, like we, we spend so much time in life building persona, and, and strapping on our dignity, and it's like you have to put it on in the morning. And, and then, so I think sometimes it's really healthy to have it knocked off, you know? I mean, it's gonna get knocked off one way or another by life, right? But sometimes you should take it off just for fun, you know? And then laughter does that. Laughter is such a great deflector. You can't keep your heat shields up with laughter, you know? Another one of my great ideas recently, go ahead and take it and write a book if you want. I suddenly realized all the greatest spiritual, energetic, visionary people I've met in this lifetime I mean, I've met the Dalai Lama. I met the Dalai Lama. The, there's only the one, the Dalai Lama. I met Desmond Tutu, you know, and Annie Dillard. I mean, unbelievable. And they're all laughing. They're all liable to laughter. Whereas the great famous murderers of history, Hitler, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot, Osama bin Laden, who murdered three of my friends, not one of them. Can you imagine any of them laughing except in some cool new way to murder people? They're the most humorless bunch of people, stuffed shirts you ever saw in your life. And I suddenly thought, laughter is even cooler than I thought it was. Laughter's wicked holy, yes, winner. (laughs) So so to make you laugh, see this is all an act of prayer, I feel. (laughs) In my town, uh, as in yours I'm sure, uh, the greatest literature that comes every week is the police log in in the small town paper. And just to make you laugh, here are some of the highlights of the police log in my small town. Man at the bank on State Street reported that a woman in a red jacket asked him if he thought that money was important. Police searched the area but could not locate the woman. <laughs> woman, quote, spent 20 minutes talking dirty on the telephone before she realized the caller was not her boyfriend, unquote. She contacted police to report the incident. <laughs> Man age 41 reports that his mother has taken his car keys and refuses to give them back. Complain of Woodhurst Place, grass on neighbor's lawn too tall. Responding officer measures the grass, 36 inches. <laughs> Squirrel attacks golfer at ninth hole on Wednesday in the public course. Staff at the course reports seeing the squirrel, quote unquote, acting strange. Again on Thursday, quote, an officer was sent to the scene to investigate, but made no arrests, unquote. <laughs> I always imagined the poor squirrel with his hands behind his back, you know. Up against the wall, up against the wall, rodent, you know. Woman reports that someone has stolen her bank card and is making deposits to her account. 
my son Joey said to me the other day, they, they saw a video of me doing something and my son Joe, Joe said, no offense. Do you ever notice when somebody says no offense, it means I'm about to offend you? Yeah. <laughs> my son Joey says, no offense, dad, but you know, and all the stuff that my brothers and my brother and sister have seen you do in public, you laugh a lot more than the other people? What's up with that? <laughs> I was like, go to your room. <laughs> Man seen near junior high school wearing a large sandwich board in which he is printed, trust Jesus or go to hell. Police issue a warning to three juveniles to stop posing plastic reindeer in mating poses. <laughs> I read that one out loud to my lovely bride who looked up and said, we have three juveniles. We're <laughs> Where were they last night? <laughs> Teenage boy seen vomiting on State Street. Police determined that the boy and his friend had been engaged in a milk drinking contest. <laughs> Large golden retriever stole a sandwich from a police officer. Dog last seen headed north. <laughs> last one, squirrel reported, squirrel reported, quote unquote, intoxicated on Cornell Street. Quote, not same squirrel as golf course. <laughs> <laughs> I love stuff like this. I do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I just committed a big honking novel. It took forever. And uh, there's a scene in it where um, there's a guy, all through the book, there's a guy who's going to die. And all through the book, his impending death is a timekeeper. The man with 13 days to live. The man with 11 days to live. And down in the end, he's got like three days left to go. He knows, he knows the moment of his death coming ahead of him. And... A young guy says to him, can I ask you a question? Not to be rude, can I ask you a question? What mattered in your life? What mattered to you? Take it, and, and the old man says, hawks huddled disgruntled against hissing snow, wrens in winter thickets, swallows carving and slicing fat grinning summer air. Salmonberries, blackberries, thimbleberries, raspberries, cloudberries. My children learning to read the sinuous liquid flow of rivers and minks and cats. Fresh bread with way too much butter. My children's hands when they cut my ancient grizzled face in their hands. Exuberance and ebullience. Tears of sorrow which are the salt seas of the heart. Sleep in every form from doze to bone weary. The shivering ache of a saxophone and the yearning of an oboe. Folding laundry hot from the dryer, cobblers and tailors, spotless kitchen floors, the way horses smell in spring, postcards in which the sender has written so much that he or she can barely squeeze in the signature, opera on the radio, toothbrushes, the postman's grin, the green sifting powdery snow of cedar pollen on the porch every year, the way herons labor through the sky with such vast elderly dignity. People who care about hubcaps, the cheerful ears of dogs, all photographs of every sort, tip jars, wine glasses, the way barbers sweep up circles of hair after haircuts, handkerchiefs, libraries, poems read aloud by older poets on the radio, fedora hats, excellent knives, the very idea of albatrosses and thesauruses. The tiny screws that hold your spectacles together. Book marginalia done with the lightest possible pencil as if the reader is whispering to the writer. Wooden rulers, fresh mown lawns, first baseman's mitts, dish racks, the way my sons smell after their baths, the moons of Jupiter, especially Io, all manner of boats, the fact that our species produced Edmund Burke. Naps of every size, junior policeman badges, walruses, cassocks, surpluses, the orphan caps of long lost pens. 
Welcome mats, ice cream trucks, all manner of bees, cabbages, and kings, eulogy and elegy and puppetry, fingernail clippers, the rigging of sailing ships, ironing boards, hoes and scythes, the mysterious clips that girls wear in their hair, bodhisats and beauticians, porters and portmanteaus, bass and bluefish, trout and grout, peach pies of every size, the sprawling porches of old hotels and the old men who sprawl upon them, the snoring of children, the burble of owls, the sound of my daughter typing her papers for school in the other room, the sound of my sons wrangling and wrestling and howling and yowling, all sounds of whatever tone or tenor issue for my children, my children in all other forms of coupled pain and joy, which is to say everything alive, which is to say all prayers, which is what I just did. Amen. Mm. I'd read that piece recently in a grade school, and a, a girl, it's always a girl. Why is it always a girl who asks me the smart question? Why is that? Girl raises her hand. Uh, I said, yes, Mr. Boyle, she says. <laughs> like, so much for fame. <laughs> Mr. Boyle, I said, yes. And she says, you say that that's fiction, but that's really all about you, isn't it? And I was like, guilty. <laughs> so, here, let me read you. See, I want to read you stories, but all these stories are pointing in the same direction, I hope. You know, in a funny way, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. I'm only telling you what you do know. You know that stories are food. You know that they're holy. You know that they're prayers. You know that if we don't have any stories, we have no muscles. You know that some stories are nonsense and lies, and some stories are bone and sinew and substance. This is the great foul joke of politics, is that so much of it is a lie a performance act, and everybody knows it, and it drives me nuts, you know? More and more little things like that that are not little drive me insane. Family values, everybody wraps that phrase around them like a flag. Oh, family values, oh, like really, who's against that? I'm against family values. I'm like what, stupid, that's just stupid. You know, but every time I hear that, it sets off some little buzzer in my head saying, oh really, family values. Is that why there's 100,000 kids in my state who can't eat tonight? Is that why there's a, it's a whole bunch of kids in my state who don't have a place to live? Is that why there are kids in my state who get beaten? Is that why there are kids in my state who don't have a bed to sleep in? Family values, bring it! Come on, politics, bring it on! You know, it's like, God, I, I can't stand it. I, I feel like, you know, maybe it's only after being a father that now I, any kind of thing that, that where kids get hurt or frightened or or battered or lies about kids drive me nuts. You know, it drives me nuts. So, so all these, I'm only reminding you what you know. Stories are huge. They're so important, man. You know, we gotta tell stories with bone. I'm not talking about fiction and nonfiction. The very best fiction is true. You know, you know what I mean. If we had ill enough in time, I could go around the room and say, Let's talk to me. Tell me the stories that matter to you. Whether they're fiction or not, they're the ones that shivered your heart, that gave you the willies. You know, where you identified with it and you thought, that is real, that's true, whether it's fiction or not. Everybody here read Gilead by Marilyn Robinson, right? Oh my God, oh my God, is that a true book or what? You know, fiction baloney. She's not here, is she? <laughs> anyway, uh, another thing, whenever I do readings and talks and stuff, I always feel like you should read something that nobody can read. You know, you should read stuff that's like fresh out of the bakery, you know, so... Bless my soul, my mother-in-law died recently, just a, a, few, a couple days, a few, a few days ago. Poor thing, she, 90, I mean, she had a good long life, but, but she, she, they thought that she was dead. She was in a coma uh, for a long time, like three, four days, and they thought she was dead, and my lovely bride, you know, the youngest and prettiest of the sisters, 
<laughs> she's, she's sleeping with her mother right in her last day. She wants to be there as her mother changes form. And so she's sleeping there next to her mom on the floor, you know, and, and at one point her mom suddenly wakes up and says, Mary, Mary, Mary. And, and bang, my lovely bride's right there holding her hands. I'm right here, mom, I'm right here. And, and her mother says, am I, am I dying? And, and my lovely bride says, yeah, ma, yeah. Uh, you know, you haven't eaten for two months, so. <laughs> yes, mom, you are, you're dying. Am I dead yet? And did you kill me? <laughs> so a story like that, you know, then she fell back into her coma and they thought that she was dead this time. Well, she's, she's in a coma for another like 30 hours. And, and so everybody thought that she was just going to stop and that was that. So at one point, all the sisters are gathered around at the foot of the bed going through family photographs for some reason. I don't know. And suddenly my mother-in-law, bless her soul, snaps awake again and, and says, isn't anybody here going to pay attention to me? <laughs> See, now, I think that this kind of collective laughter about a story like that is actually a really cool roaring prayer for my mother-in-law. I think it's actually a great thing, you know. So, so here's a little thing I wrote for my mother-in-law. I was so haunted by her vanishing. She, she changed forms, you know, and that I went and soaked myself in the King James Bible, blessed soul. I love the King James. Catholic friends of mine, priests will say, mm, it's not the Catholic Bible, Brian. <laughs> But it's a better Bible, I feel. So it's got that thorny, prickly language, you know. And I was struck by the Psalms and the, the, the word Selah in the, in the Psalms. Psalm in which they come for the body. They're, they are coming for the body. A nurse certifies that who she is is no longer resonant in what she was. Selah. They turn out to be a slight girl named Helene. Selah. She eases what was a woman onto the gurney. One of the daughters assists her, Selah. Would you like your mother to be facing up or down, says Helene. Up, please, Selah. Helene zips the bag. She did believe, yes, she did, Selah. She received the glories of the Lord each and every day with her eyes, which remained hawk-eyed until her final breath. Is that so, says Helene, Selah. Transplant candidates, those eyes, certainly. Sign here and here. I will drive very carefully, absolutely, I promise. His mercy upon her soul, Selah. She trusted in thee. Refuge she will discover in thee, in her husband's arm, and her mother's kiss, and all calamities are past, Selah. And housekeeping will come for the sheets. Amen, and then again, amen. In the lobby, a father is reading the sports section while his child gulps the biggest soda I have ever seen on this blessed, wild, and weary earth. Amen, and then again, amen. Sila, Sila. Uh. Well, let's immediately, in the Irish Catholic way, break a moment of great emotional power with a joke. <laughs> there were these three rabbis in a canoe. <laughs> I want to take up smoking. Another one. I just I was doing visiting a class the other day, and a kid said, "Well, have you traveled outside the United States?" I said, "I've been on a book tour in Australia." And I thought, oh, "I have to take up smoking so I can say that properly." I was on a book tour in Australia. <laughs> anyway, but here's here's something that'll make you laugh, and I'll tell you a story afterwards. Lines on the tiny ubiquitous tattoo that every young woman these days appears to have on her lower spine. Not that I'm looking or anything, but there it is, time and time and time again. And I find myself wondering, did they all go to the same tattoo guy or what? And where was the meeting at which all young ladies in America decided to get tattooed? And while we're on the subject, why are young women not as beautiful as women at age 50 or so? 
How can a young woman be essentially a perfect and extraordinary example of female beauty, but somehow it's the woman age 50 with that look in her eye that just totally nails you to the floor? Why is that? I mean, all the explanations we could summon up would be variations on seasoning and experience and grace under duress and courage against pain and how facing a lot of things makes you deeper and cooler and more merciful. And so somehow in ways I don't understand at all, your average older woman, and of course I have one particular example in mind, is wild, stunning, beautiful, her water's deeper, her soul hammered into a kind of sword that's just riveting to watch. You almost wish there was a secret mark or sign that older women would tattoo in their eyelids as a sign of turbulent and enticing water ahead. But I suppose one of the coolest and most lovely things about older women is that there's no map to them at all, no wisdom that applies. You're utterly on your own in their wild water. All best wishes. <laughs> well, I read this out loud to my lovely bride, thinking it was a pretty cool and subtle love letter. How wrong I was. <laughs> I read this out loud, thinking, I'm going to get a kiss out of this one. And she looks at me with that look of laser death, laser death stare. Says, why are you staring at the lower spines of young women? <laughs> I was like, Mary, I don't think we're quite on the same page here. <laughs> you know? Uh, well, what time? Oh, geez, I burned half my time. Jeez, oh, Louise. Well, can, can I stop and tell you two stories for a minute? <laughs> Absolutely not, Mr. Doyle. <laughs> um, I, I, I want to do more readings and pieces like that, but I want, also want to just, I want you to have fun. I want you to laugh and have fun and think about stories and attentiveness and witness. And stories are the, are the trail, the spoor of witness, right? Paying attention is the great duty, the great responsibility, the great gift. You would not be here if you didn't have attentiveness antenna. If you were not an attentiveness junkie, you wouldn't be in the room. To me, this is a real, this is like a big story AA meeting, <laughs> you know? We're all, hi, my name is Brian. <laughs> so, like, you, we're all story junkies. You have the thing, you have the gift, you have the urge, you have the itch. Use it, okay? Use it. You know, my father used to say, bless his soul, he's a fine man, my dad, 91, still smoking. <laughs> You know, my father says, look, if God gives you a gift and you don't use it, that's a sin. Okay? That's a sin. This happened to me. My, of course, your children always blow smoke on you, right? This happened to me after September 11th. Indeed, three of my friends were murdered on September 11th. Tommy Crotty, Farrell Lynch, Sean Lynch. Good boys. Tells you about Irish Catholic New York, right? And, and, uh, and so I was so enraged and horrified and furious and helpless and speechless and uh, you know and I didn't know what to do I didn't know what to do I didn't know what to do you know all I could do was pray and but even prayers seemed empty and shallow and I was so horrified man and and so I go home and one day I, I was at work and a magazine called me and said we've scrapped our editorial calendar like all the other magazines in the world and we're going to do a special issue on September 11th you know we'd like you to contribute and I said no 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 I will not. There's nothing to say. I'm not adding to the ocean of witless commentary and vengeful prose. You know, I'm going to bow and shut my mouth and pray silently, which is the only eloquent thing to do, as St. Francis says. You know, go thou and preach the gospel. If necessary, use words, says Francis. And so I said, no, there's nothing to do. You know, I was just going to pray. So I'm explaining this at home in the kitchen, explaining this to my poor wife. You know, yay, hi. And I said, no, Mary. <laughs> And uh, so I said, no, because blah, 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 blah. Well, our, our daughter was standing there, and it was probably nine. And, and she goes, well, what are you going to do then? 
I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, Dad, you know, you're always saying, no offense, <laughs> you're always saying if, that, you know, if God gives you a tool and you don't use your tool, that's a sin. And so, you know, Dad, no offense, but you only have one tool. <laughs> 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 you say so yourself. So you're only good at catching and sharing stories. So if you're not going to catch and share any stories, isn't that a sin? Like, go to your room. <laughs> But she was right, she was right. You know, so I ended up writing three stories for my friends. One about the couple who leaped from the tower holding hands, you know that story? There are no, there's no video, there's no film, there's no photograph, there were only 14 people saw with their naked holy eyeballs that a man reached for a woman and a woman reached for a man at the lip of hell. They reached for each other. No one knows who they were, no one knows if they were lovers, friends, colleagues, companions, or if they just met each other there at the abyss, at the edge of the abyss. But they reached for each other. People saw with their eyes, they saw a man and a woman stick out each hand and grab each other's hands and then jump out. You know, they fell so fast, they would have blacked out on the way, thank God, before they hit the ground. The mayor reported, as you remember, the mayor reported that bodies hit the ground so hard there was a pink mist in the air. But I choose to remember not the, the, the idiocy of a man who would murder my friends and murder children. We forget that there were little children who were murdered that day. I choose to remember a man reached for a woman and a woman reached for a man. I choose to remember there was a guy who carried a lady down 50 floors in her wheelchair. 50 floors in her wheelchair, you know? And then he turned around and went back in and didn't come back out. I choose to remember the teacher on the corner of Liberty Street. Liberty Street. I love my country. Liberty Street. Uh, there was a little kindergarten pre-K there, right? And a little boy, a little boy looked up and as the first people were jumping off the towers, the little boy said to his teacher, oh, look, teacher, the birds are on fire. And the teacher picked up that boy and ran down the street as the gathering powerful cloud of ash came for them. She saved that little boy. Hmm? You know? You can choose to do what you want with stories. And you can use stories as weapons. You can fight back with stories. You know, you can fight back with stories. You know, somebody said to me once, if you were standing next to Osama bin Laden, what would you do? And I thought, well, I'm an American, I'm an Irish American male from New York City. So 99.9% .9 of me would want to rip out his kidneys and, uh, you know, and kill him on the spot. But you know, like, then what? I mean. Isn't this kind of the story of human beings? We've been doing this for a really long time. My father, bless his soul, says, Osama bin Laden's biggest problem was stupidity. He was not a very good student of history. You know, to try to convert people to your belief by killing them is not an efficient recruitment program. <laughs> if he'd read his history, he would have known that the Catholics tried that. LAUGHTER it didn't work for us and it won't work for him, says my father. And you know, hey, my father fought not one but two wars, so I ain't arguing with the old man. So anyway, you can, you can tell stories. And my answer to the kid who said, what would you, have done, what would you do if you were standing next to Osama bin Laden? I thought, after I get over the violent urge, I would probably first say, okay, first of all, I'm fight. I'll tell you a story. Bonehead, I'll tell you a story. You want to hear a story? I'll tell you a story about the couple that held hands. I'll tell you a story about the firemen ran up knowing that they would never come back down. You got something that's bigger than that story, old man? Bring it on. 
you know, bring it on. There were firemen who ran up those stairs. I called a friend of mine, it was a fireman that day. How come those guys went up those stairs knowing they wouldn't come back down? How come they did that? And there's no way you're gonna put out a fire on the 108th floor, that's ridiculous. I said, what, then why didn't they go up there? And he said, we don't have words for that, do we? All the words you could use are, are duty and honor and responsibility and they're all weak. Why would somebody do that? As Springsteen says, those guys must have seen the faces of their wives and children hanging in the air, the smoke, knowing they would never see them again in this form. Why would you run up there? Why? You know, and there's no answer for it except to tell a story. There's no answer for that. We don't have words or categories for so much in life, and the only way you can tiptoe toward the glory and the courage of those things is to tell a story. You know, sometimes I feel more and more as I get older, and I've been writing for a long time. I feel like so many of the times I don't have any words that fit the thing I want to say. And all you can do is tell a story. A story is a country where you can both stand for a little while that, without labels, right? You know, if I tell you the story of the couple that held hands, it says something powerful and amazing about what human beings can do. We can do these things. You know, why is it the story of human beings that so much of our greatness only comes under great duress? Why is that? Why does it have to be that way? You know, why is it that we adopt so many masks as we, get, as we grow up and then we have to have them kicked off by life before we realize, life's short, man, be naked now. You know, be naked now. Amen, sister! <laughs> I just did a reading and a lady came up to me and said, so you're Catholic? <laughs> I said, yeah. It was at a Catholic university. I said, yeah, we just spent a whole hour talking about Catholicism and forgiveness and mercy and grace. And I thought I made it pretty clear. And she goes, uh-huh, because you have a future in the evangelical church. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I was going to laugh, except I could feel my mother standing behind me, ready to smack me in the head, you know. <laughs> so, I was telling somebody this morning, I have a, a dear friend who's an Episcopalian pastor in Seattle, and really great guy, and I call him up every once in a while. He's one of those great guys, he answers his own phone, you know. Ring! Reverend Bill Harper. And my voice comes on the other end of the phone. Come back, come back to the mothership. <laughs> what are you protesting against? What is the point of being Protestant? What does that mean? Come back. We don't own the world anymore. We punted. <laughs> We're again just a small revolutionary cult. Come back. <laughs> and his response is always, I know it's you, Brian. <laughs> so anyway, let me tell you a couple stories and then I'll do some more reading. And then can, we can do questions and stuff if you want. I know we gotta be out of here at like 4.34 on the button because the chapel, Deb's chapel thing is coming. But anyway, two quick stories just to make you laugh again, okay? Uh, I was talking to my dad the other day, 91. My mother's 90 and my father's 91. It's a May-December romance, says my father. <laughs> <laughs> Every morning my father gets out of bed and uh, you, know, you have to kind of hoist yourself out of bed at 91 and, and he gets a good running head start and gets out of bed and he turns to my mother and says, another world and Olympic record for longest lived Doyle male. <laughs> My, fa my father used to say to us all the time when we were growing up, uh, puffing away at his cigar, ah, the Doyles. We die young, but we never lose our hair. <laughs> I'm like, Pop, that's not a good calculation. <laughs> you know? Anyway, I was talking to my dad the other day, and uh, we were talking about the, the, the seventh circle of hell called the Holiday Elementary School Pageant. Yeah? Yeah? 
And I had just been, I just had one inflicted upon me, so it was fulminating. And, and my father says, told me two stories that I had forgotten that he reminded me of, so I want to tell you them real quick. A, my brother Tommy, uh, we, have a large, we had a large Catholic family, six brothers. Right? No? Yeah, six, seven boys. I have to count. <laughs> and one, one girl. And so my brother Tommy's the last one, you know, so we, my mom's really not sure of his name. <laughs> she calls him eight sometimes, just to... <laughs> <laughs> just to annoy him. Anyway, my brother Tommy, he's in kindergarten, and, uh, and it's the night before the Christmas pageant. He says to my mother, oh, I'm in a, th- I'm in a production tomorrow, and I need a costume. <laughs> and for some reason, the shtick of this production was local flora and fauna, and, and so he was supposed to be a potato. <laughs> I don't know why. Like the nun, so there's like potatoes and hemlock trees and stuff. It's very strange. So, so there's a whole line. All the kindergarten kids were supposed to be potatoes in the front of the, front of the stage, right? So, so my mother with eight kids, right? She was a smoker too, come to think of it. My, my mother had all these kids, and so she doesn't have time for this. So she says to my poor sister, hey, Tommy needs a costume tomorrow. He's supposed to be a potato. Take care of it. And, and, <laughs> so, so my sister, bless her soul, goes to the closet and pulls out a really ratty old brown raincoat. And, and drapes it over my brother Tommy and says, you're a freaking potato. <laughs> and if you complain to mom, I'll snap your fingers. <laughs> so, so there's Tommy the next, the next day in the production. There's a whole line of these potatoes, right? Beautifully sewn costumes that the people are... Right? And there's, there's Tommy in his little soiled brown raincoat. He looks like a little flasher. <laughs> telling us in a chapel. <laughs> and so, 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 the, so the thing is, each child is supposed to like step forth into the spotlight and say like, you know, Hosanna in the highest or whatever. So, so my brother Tommy completely forgets his line, but he's a self-possessed child and the spotlight hits him and he steps into the spotlight in his soiled brown raincoat and he says, when you're out of Schlitz, you're out of beer. <laughs> And there's a gasp of horror. <laughs> and the, the whole auditorium, <gasps> except the Doyles. Quit <laughs> weeping with laughter over there. <laughs> so so that's, that's bad enough, okay? Then my, my father says, and you forgot the story about Peter. My brother Peter was in the Easter pageant. He's, he's like third grade, I think. Well, in his case, he was supposed to be in an egg. It was the same nun. Uh, who's, who's the theater director, so she used the same format. So, so in his case, the little kids were, there's like cardboard eggs, painted color, so he's supposed, each child's supposed to pop out of his egg and, and say, again, uh, I think Peter's line was, Hosanna in the highest, or, you know, and, and so Peter pops out of his egg and says, Jesus Christ, it's hot in there! <laughs> And the same thing happens. There's a gasp of horror. <laughs> Except this time it's in Lyman by the nun cursing in Gaelic into the microphone. <laughs> oh, we were laughing so hard. My, my father said in his inimitable Jim Doyle fashion, I thought I was going to urinate in my underwear. My mother still talks about this story. My mother says, thank God we were sitting under a statue of the Madonna. 
<laughs> so anyway, so I, I need to get those stories off my chest, okay? So let's go back to the reading part. Let's see, let me read you another. Here, I wanted to read this to you. Uh, let me, read, let me read a couple little things, and then we can do, you want to do questions and stuff, or should I just keep reading and talking? You want to do questions? We can do questions later. Uh, what questions can I possibly answer anyway? You know, if God is all-powerful, can he make a rock so heavy that not even he can lift? I don't know. I, uh, so. Listen, a lot of what great stories are, Pat, Pat Man and I were talking about this this morning, a lot of what great writing is, is that it's not about the writer. You know, it was a huge shock to me at age 28 to suddenly realize, oh, it's not all about me. What a bummer. Because <laughs> it was all about me for the first 28 years. But it was a huge shock. But A, it made me a much better man and a much, much, much better writer, right? To realize it's not about me. Everybody else is more interesting. And one of the things I want you to remember is witness, witness, witness. The more you catch and share other people's stories, the better world it is. Two inches we go, two inches we go. Every good story told advances the universe another millimeter away from violence and revenge and murder and greed. Those are easy and stupid. You know, the greatest line ever written in my state was written by William Stafford, the great, the great poet William Stafford, who wrote, violence is a failure of the imagination. Violence is a failure of the imagination. What a line, what a line. There's a country beyond this country, not the one that we're in. This is a great country, a verb. In the United States of America. It's a verb, dang it, not a noun. It's not a noun. It's a continuous activity, a brave, shaggy, sometimes violent, cruel, and stupid, but we're, we're still in the game. We're still in the game. But beyond where we see with this world, there's another world beyond. And I'm not talking about heaven. I'm talking about the world that will come if we tell enough good stories, if we hold hands against the dark, if we laugh, if we give despair and darkness the finger, if we say to people like Bin Laden, hello, anybody home, you idiot? You know, what's the matter with you? Stupid. Get a grip. Put a seatbelt on and put your hands where I can see them. <laughs> anyway, the more good stories we tell, the more the universe advances. If we do our work, and part of your work is to be here, you wouldn't have come to this festival if you weren't addled by story and riveted by what stories can do. You know, don't forget. Think of this as a team meeting. This has nothing to do with Brian Doyle and everything to do with us. This is a team meeting of people who know that stories are wicked strong and powerful and momentous. And if we do our work right day after day after day, if you sit your butt in a chair and tell good stories and listen to other people and dig their stories and write them down and share them, there will come a world where no child weeps of, from fear, where everybody has something to eat. Where, where, as a friend of mine, a, a colonel in the army, a young guy, 33 years old, this guy, I said to him, Paul, what is the point? What's the point of your work? Why are you career army? What in God's name are you trying to do? What's the point? And he said to me, my job is to put my job out of business. My job is to make a world where a kid goes and visits war in the museum. My job is to make a world where someday a four-year-old will say, Grandpa, what does the word gun mean? That's the world I'm working for, Mr. Doyle. I was like, okay, okay, okay. Another stupid question and a superb answer. <laughs> so... But witness, 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 okay? Here's one. All legs and curiosity. On the shore of the sea of bubbling, babbling, lanky kids dipping their toes into the ocean of college for the first time, there are also, of course, a raft of outwardly calm but inwardly rattled parents of every gender. 
And I got to talking to a tiny mother, and as soon as she started talking about her daughter, she burst into tears right there by the women's bathroom. But she recovered fast, and she started talking faster. And I think you should hear what she said. This is the greatest moment and the worst moment of my life, she said. I was just changing her diapers a minute ago. Now she's all legs and curiosity. I can't believe she's not coming home tonight. I'll get ready to send her a text message at midnight. Where are you? Come home now. And she won't come home tonight. She'll be here with you. I love that. And I can't bear that. Her father can't stop crying. He's out in the truck, you know. Everybody thinks he's a tough guy, and he's out there sobbing in the truck. These are our babies, all these tall babies. Will you take care of her? This lady was about four foot nothing, and she's pointing up at me. Will you take care of her? I'm like, yes. <laughs> please, please don't hit me by the women's bathroom. Mm. These are our babies, all these tall babies. Will you take care of her? Will you know if she's sad and scared? She's scared more than she admits. She brought her baby blanket, you know, in the bottom of her luggage. She doesn't think I know, but I know. I held it against my face last night when I packed her bag, and it smelled like her, and I cried and cried. I hope you know how great she is. She's the greatest kid in the history of the world. She wanted to come here so badly. The day the, the letter came from you, she danced right out the front door and across the grass and around the neighborhood waving that letter at the neighbors. And everyone was laughing and pouring out of their houses to give her a hug because everybody loves her. You'll love her too, you'll see. You better take care of her. She didn't want to go anywhere else. She knew you would know what she wanted more than anything. She never wears socks. She'll get sick twice this year. Mark my words, October and February. Are you writing this down? I was like, yeah. <laughs> Can you tell the nurses here? She wants to be a nurse, you know. Her grandmother was a nurse, my husband's mother. He's still out in the truck crying. He says he'll be fine by dinner. He will not be fine by dinner. He used to carry her on his back all the time. When she was little, they would climb mountains that way with her whispering in his ears. He makes fish just the way she likes it. He says he's gonna go talk to your chefs here about how to cook their fish. She'll be the best nurse there ever was. She has the biggest heart of anyone God ever made in a million years. I can't stand it that she's not coming home tonight. She's not coming home as a kid ever again, is she? Well, you take the best care of her that you can. Do you swear? Because I spent every minute of every day since she was born thanking God for the gift of that kid. And even when she was bad, she was the best kid there ever was. You promise me you'll take care of her. I can't stand this. You'll know her. She's tall with long hair and blue jeans and a smile like the sun. I was like, great. That reduces it to about 2,000 candidates for me. <laughs> you'll know who she is. Trust me. Once you meet her, you'll never forget her for the rest of your life. Trust me. It's like, oh, man. Somebody tells you a story like that. You get your butt to the keyboard as fast as possible and write that down. Ooh, you know, in your, in your, in your packet... In your homework handout, there's a piece like this called Boots that I love to read, but I won't read it because you have it. Uh, so, but, but I want you to read this three pieces, I think, in your handout. So I feel like a professor. Let's refer to the handout. <laughs> there's Boots, uh, which is a, a piece about listening to a 27-year-old woman who just got back from the belly of the beast. Don't read it now. Mm -hmm. uh, then there's a piece called The Smear of Squirrel, which I think is probably the most pithy thing I ever wrote. It's a little boy, I saw a little boy zooming along on his bicycle. He stops by using his heels of his sneakers. Okay, I wanted to go out and say, does it, don't you know your father bought those sneakers? <laughs> <laughs> but he, he skids to a halt. And I think, what is he doing? I'm looking out the window. And, and he gets down and he gets, there's a mud puddle. And he sticks his hands into the mud puddle and pulls up a broken, deceased squirrel. 
you know, and then he very carefully carries it over to a little ravine and gives it back to the water from which it came, you know, and I was like, oh my God in heaven, I think I just saw the explanation of the word Eucharist. <laughs> you know, I mean, to, to the reverence for what, reverence, reverence and community, you know, and I was so knocked out by it. And the third piece, I can't remember. What's the third piece? Oh, the woman in the vast blue coat. That's a piece, too, about witness, but just paying attention. Also, can I just point out, it doesn't have to be recently. A lot of stuff, you, you just need a little clue, right? A little, often it's a, piece, a snatch of music, or in, in Proust, poor Proust, uh, he smelled a cookie and then he committed seven volumes. <laughs> but he was French, so. <laughs> a, friend of mine, a friend of mine read the first two volumes of Proust's great seven-volume set and said, geez, Louise, get out of bed, you pervert. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was very funny. <laughs> so, right, well, let me read you one last piece. What time is this? Do I have any time? It was a watch. Yeah. I have twenty. Ah, she said twenty. Ah uh-huh. ha. <laughs> well, let me read you one last piece, and then if there's any time, we can we can you can say, is that your real nose? <laughs> Kid just asked me that. It, it, you know, I said. I said, any questions? Again, a girl. What is the matter with you people? Again, a girl raised her hand. Mr. Doyle this time. Mr. Doyle said, what? She goes, yeah, I have a question. Is that your real nose? I said, pardon me? She goes, well, I said, well, it's been busted several times. I had a bunch of brothers, you know, so I think I broke it three times. And one time my father put it back into place by simply wrenching it back into place. I said, can we go to the doctor? No. I was like, oh, and, and foolish me, I said to my lovely bride, that's the worst pain imaginable. She goes, really? <laughs> I was like, oh, no. So, somebody, another, I was just at another school. See, here we go, right off. I was just at a school, and the kid said to me, have you ever seen any miracles? You know, you're going on and on about miracles, the, the miracle of the moment, the pregnancy of every moment with holiness and miracle and story, and you're going, you know, going on and on, flapping your old gums and blah, blah, blah. You ever see any miracles? I said, yeah, first of all, take a breath. Okay, take another one. That's two. <laughs> and uh, you ever see a sparrow up close? Okay, that's three. I said, you really want to talk about miracles? I saw people come out of my wife. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it was truly horrifying. <laughs> you saw the movie The Alien? It's like that. And I think it was a fourth grade class and all the kids are like, oh. And then, and then God knows what I do. Off I went on a rant about, I saw, there were people, first of all, there were people living inside the woman I married, okay? There were people living by her spleen. Okay, that's just disturbing. Nobody knew who they were. <laughs> they didn't pay rent. <laughs> All he did in there was kick, as far as I can tell, you know. And then it was bad enough the first time, you know. The doctor roots around, and my poor the woman Mary is a little tiny thing, you know. And so she's when she was pregnant at one point, I went and bought a pup tent and said, "You could wear this," you know. And she didn't think that was funny. So so it's bad enough. So she has cesarean, the poor thing, and and, and out the doctor hauls out our daughter. Right? And, and why doctors think this is funny is a mystery to me. The doctor looks at me and he holds up our daughter and says, boy or girl? And well, the umbilical cord's hanging right down the middle. And I was like, oh, that's a girl with a major problem. <laughs> or that is a boy who's going to have to have a wheelbarrow in front of him the rest of his life. <laughs> 
<laughs> see that one? Even that one, I, I kept saying, can we speed this up? Like my poor woman who married me was in labor for like 30 hours. I was like, God, I'm really tired. Can we, can we move along? <laughs> so, so then we have twins, right? And it was, and it was unbelievable. You know, they, they take them out one after another. This, and it's like, how many more are there? I mean, I'm really tired. <laughs> Anyway, but this, it was horrifying. I was really horrifying. Anyway, so let me read you one last piece, and then, and then uh, I was just—I got a note from a magazine in Australia saying we're doing an issue uh, in which the theme is how to be good. Would you like to contribute? And I, I laughed so hard I think I sprained my kidney. <laughs> I was like, "You want me <laughs> to contribute to an issue about how to be good? I'm sorry. Have you never read anything that I've written?" Do you know anything about me? I mean, you know, I've never been arrested, but it's been awful close. But then I kept thinking, well, it'd be kind of fun to swing the idea sideways and see what happens. So, so we'll try. I've never read this before, so let's see if it works. How to be good. First, pick up that wet towel in the bathroom. And at least, for heaven's sake, hang it up to dry and wipe the sink after you shave. The sink doesn't have to be shining and spotless. That would be fussy. But at least don't leave those little mounds of neck hairs like dead insects for me to find. At least do that. It's the little things. They're not little. You knew that. I'm just reminding you. Like the dead sparrow that the old lady across the street picked up from the street where it fell, broken and almost unrecognizable as a holy being. And she gently dug it into her garden of fading flowers. A little act, but it wasn't little. It sang quietly of respect and reverence for what had been alive. And this was holy beyond our understanding or calculation or imagination. Or in the morning when you rush into the shop for coffee, at least say thank you to the harried girl with the tattoo of an eye between her original two eyes. <laughs> at least look her in the first and second eyes and, <laughs> and be gentle. There is holiness in her. And the policeman who pulls you over for texting while driving, yes, you're angry, and yes, you should be chasing down murderers. But be kind. Remove the bile from your tongue. For one thing, it actually was your fault. You should have checked the basketball scores later. And for another, holiness liveth in that man. Also, in the grumpy imam, and in the surly teenager, and the raving man at the train station, and the foul-mouthed man at the football game, and in the cousin you detest with a deep and abiding detestation, and have detested ever since you were tiny mammals, fresh from the wombs of your mothers. When he calls to ask you airily to help him lug that awful, vulgar, elephantine, stupid couch to yet another of his shabby apartments, do not roar and use vulgar and vituperative language, even though you have excellent cause to do so. But holiness liveth in him. Speak hard words into your closet and cast them thus into oblivion. Help him with the couch for the ninth time. And do not credit yourself with good work, for you too are a package of small sins and large cowardices. And the way to be good is not to join the little sisters of the poor in Calcutta, but to be half an ounce better a man today than you were yesterday. Do not consider tomorrow. Consider the next moment after you read this essay. Do the dishes. Call your mother. Coach the boys' basketball team. Purge that closet of the clothes you will never wear in this lifetime and give them away. Sell the old machinery. Turn it into food for those who are starving. Express your gratitude. Offer a quiet prayer for broken and terrified children. Write your congressman and ask him to actually do the job he was elected to do, which is to care for the bruised among us, not to preen on television. Pray quietly by singing. We do not know how prayers matter, but we know that they do. 
Do not concern yourself with measuring and calculating, but bring your kindness and humor like swords against the squirm of despair. Holiness liveth in you. Remember that. Use the tools the maker gave you and only you to bring what light you can. You know this. I'm only reminding you. Work with all your grace. Reach out. Do not rest. There will be time and time enough for rest. Care for what you have been given. Give away that which you treasure most. The food of the spirit is love given and granted. Savor that and disperse that which is not important. Use less, slow down, write small notes with your own hand. All the way to heaven is heaven, said a saint that I know. And who are we to gainsay her? Remember that witness is a glorious and muscular weapon. What you see with your holy eyeballs and report with the holy twist of your tongue has weight and substance. If you see cruelty, call it by its true name. If you hear a lie, call it out in the open. Try to forgive that which is unforgivable. That is the way forward for us. I don't know how that can be, but it is. You and I know that. I'm only reminding us. Be who you are. Only you. Rise to what you can dream. Don't cease dreaming. Do not despair, even though pain comes hand in hand with joy. That is the nature of the gift. It is a most amazing and extraordinary and confusing and complicated gift. Don't take it for granted, not for an instant, not for a seventh of a second. The price for it is your attentiveness and your generosity and kindness and mercy. Also humor. Humor will destroy the brooding castles of the murderers and chase their armies wailing into the darkness. What you do now today in these next few minutes matters more than I can tell you. It advances the universe. If we are our best selves, there will come a world where children do not weep and war and memory and violence is a joke no one remembers, having forgotten the words. You and I know this is possible. I am only reminding us, love well, not only the people you know, but every idiot and liar and thief and blowhard and even your cousin with that damn couch. I do not know how we can do this with much grace, but I know we must, and so do you. Let us begin again, you and me, this afternoon. Are you ready? Hold my hand, and let's go. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Many thanks to Patrick Madden. You can learn more about his work and the art of the essay at quotidiana.org. And to Brian Doyle, you will be missed. We are sure, as the last prayer you wrote said, that no one has ever laughed more at the ocean of hilarious things in this world or gaped more in astonishment at the wealth of miracles everywhere, every moment. Thank you for making us laugh and teaching us to pay attention. Rewrite Radio is recorded at the Festival of Faith and Writing on the campus of Calvin College and produced by the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing. Our team includes John Brown, Don Hedinga, Jennifer Holberg, Scott Jose, Bob Hudson, Lou Klatt, 
Debra Enstra, Amanda Smart, Sarah Turnage, Debbie Visser, and James Wirt. You can learn more about the Festival of Faith and Writing at festival.calvin.edu. And if you're into the social media, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what we're doing here on Rewrite Radio, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other people discover the show, and we are so grateful. Also, we've got 26 years of festival recordings to explore here on Rewrite Radio. And if you've been at some of these festivals and have a favorite session or two that you are especially excited to hear on this podcast, just shoot me an email at ffw.calvin.edu and tell me about them. Just put Rewrite Radio in the subject line. Thanks for listening to Rewrite Radio. I'm Lisa Ann Cockrell, back soon with more from the Festival of Faith and Writing. <laughs>